You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Tina Liu, here with Metamorphosis. And my name is Faison. Here on the Metamorphosis podcast, we are interviewing various physicians across BC with the aim of learning more about their specialties and helping us to navigate our medical careers. We have a very special guest joining us today, Dr. Gurdip Parhar, the Dean of Professionalism at UBC. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Parhar. Thank you. Nice to be here. If you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey to medicine. Uh, thank you. Great question. I uh, I grew up in northern BC, so my earliest memories are of being in Kitimat. I was born in India and came over to Terrace in Kitimat in northern BC near the Alaskan Panhandle when I was very, very young. So my earliest memories are from up in Kitimat, the snow and the and the bears and the fishing and uh, the street hockey. Um, finished high school there, grade 12, um, and then was trying to figure out where I wanted to go for undergrad and and ended up at Simon Fraser University, and I think it had to do with some combination of scholarships and the kind of science profs when in, when you went as a high school student to say, um, you know, which labs kind of connected. And I was a I was a total science nerd then. I was into science fairs and and all sorts of things. And there was one lab instructor that I just totally connected with, and so I ended up there. And I did two years there with the view that I might think about medicine, but I wasn't totally gun-ho about it. It wasn't sort of something that I'd always, always wanted to do. And um, I was really headed towards research. I was quite happy doing more, more science fair projects, but at a higher level. And, um, and then one of the profs put a hand on my shoulder, literally, and he said, you know, I think that you should think about clinical medicine. And I said, really? He says, you, I think you've got the personality for it. And I said, hmm. So at the time, this is before I'm going to age myself now. So this would have been 87 to 89. And university calendars, which are all online now, and um, academic uh, admission requirements, all online. It wasn't like that. You get the you get the little catalog, paper catalog, a book. And so I got one from UBC, and the med school one said for admission to UBC, and being the only medical program at, uh, in the province, said you needed a minimum of three years. And I thought, oh, that would mean another year. Well, let's just go a little bit over further. So I wrote to University of Calgary and University of Alberta, and they said, um, we do take applications from second-year students, but um, but it's very rare that we take anybody. And then, then there was another section that said, and even less so if you're from out of province. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I don't know. Let's just see what happens. And I did apply, and I got into both. And looking back on it in hindsight, this tells you how um, uninformed the decision was. And all I'd said to myself was, University of Alberta has programs much like UBC is a four-year program, and Calgary's is a three-year program like McMaster's. And that was the logic. It was like, oh, if I can do undergrad in two years and med school in three, why not? Why not do it that way? And that was the logic. I'd love to say I knew everything about their program. And and in hindsight, I I, I loved it. It was a great curriculum, and, and you know, I, I'm very proud to be an alumni, alumnus from the University of Calgary, but, but that was the logic. So I, so I finished medical school there in 92. So I was there from 89 to 92. And I was the second last year where you could get a license to practice in most provinces in Canada, especially BC and Ontario, with one year of a rotating internship. So what you could do, and this was, it was an interesting path. And I, when I'm talking to medical students now, I often regret that we don't have this option. So basically what you did was you finished medical school, whether it was a three- or four-year program, didn't matter, and then you did a one-year of a rotating internship 
Um, so think about it like an R1 year. And, and that was it. So when you, when you applied from university, you didn't apply into a residency. You applied into where do you want to do your rotating internship? Or you had the choice of going into family medicine, which was a two-year program. So what was neat was you could apply into a rotating internship. And then during that year is then when you applied into specialties or back into family medicine. So all of us, there were, you know, whatever, a couple hundred programs across the country. And we would go, much like you do now for your CARMS interviews. So we would actually say, you know, I'd like to do my internship at, um, you know, University Hospital in Edmonton, Foothills Hospital in Calgary. And the ones around here in BC, the popular ones at the time were one in Victoria, Lionsgate, um, St. Paul's, and uh, Royal Columbian are the ones that come to mind. There's probably one or two others. And so what was neat there was you did your year of internship, and during that year, about a third or half of the way in, then you said, aha, I want to go into psychiatry, or I want to go into surgery. And then you then you applied and went into another match. And and so it was kind of, and like I said, I regret that um, students now don't have that option, because what you could do, and this is the other benefit of that, is you could do that one year, get a license to practice, and actually practice for a few years, sometimes in rural areas and urban areas, and then apply into a residency. And so a lot of the specialists that are my age and older, a lot of them actually became family docs first, physicians first, and then they went into, you know, obstetrics and gynecology or psychiatry, which I think kind of makes them better specialists because they, they get generalism, but they also get what family doctors do. So um, I had gone into my internship at Royal Columbia in my R1 year, um, thinking I would do um, general surgery, possibly um, with a specialty in um, oncology. That was sort of what I'd clicked on in my um, clerkship years in, in Calgary. And um, it was interesting. Um, it was towards the end, two-thirds of the way through the program at Royal Columbia in my internship year, and my program director sat me down and said, we've got a bit of a problem. I said, what's that, thinking I'd done something wrong? He said, you know that whole thing about um, get, trying to get into a residency program that you want to get into? And I said, yes. He said, the first step is you actually need to apply. And I hadn't. I, it was it was one of those classic situations where my first rotation was internal medicine, and I loved it to bits. And then I loved all the subspecialties of it. Like I loved cardiology. I loved nephrology. I loved being in the ICU. I was, you know, and I just, I loved every little bit of it, even rheumatology, neurology. It was just, you know, I, I loved all of it. And got out of that, and it was intense. And then the next rotation was psychiatry, and then after that came obstetrics and gynecology. And it, I was literally three-quarters of the way through the year, and I thought, I can't make up my mind. Like, I actually, like you know, people often talk about family docs not wanting to give up a part of their practice. I would be like your classic textbook case of that. And it was, it was, and look back on it now, and I think it was just greed. Like, I think it was me saying, I don't know. I don't know if I ever want to not be able to deliver a baby. I don't know if I don't want to see peds. And I don't know if I don't want to ever do surgery or anesthesiology. And so as the year went around, I thought, you know, I think I need a bit more time to think about this. And so I did. So I finished my year at Royal Columbian. And so I, I didn't tell you the rest of the stories. The program director, the same explanation I gave him, to Dale Stogren, who just retired recently. And Dale had been the program director at Royal Columbian for ages. In fact, he had interned there back in the 70s, I think. And I said to Dr. Stogren, I said, you know, I, I, I'm not ready to make up my mind. And he said, well, I've got, I've, I'm going to let you not apply because everybody was applying to things. Um, except for the people that were going to go into practice. And he said, I'll let you not apply on one condition. And, um, and, I, and I said, what? And he said, the first locum you do once you have your license in June is mine. 
And so I did. So one, the first locum I did for five weeks was actually in his practice in Coquitlam. And it, and it was neat. Like, it was quite neat. And then for the next six months to 12 months, I did locums um, around uh, mostly the lower mainland. And, and it was good. And I think that's where I realized fairly early on that this was it. Like, I, I was meant for this. And um, it, it worked out. It worked out really well. And in hindsight, I think it was meant to be for me. But it wasn't deliberate. So the choice of going into medicine wasn't deliberate. And certainly the choice for family medicine wasn't deliberate. So it sounds like you found yourself in a similar situation to what many of us are in right now. And the whole reason for this podcast it's really difficult to decide something right now that we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives. Do you have advice for people in our shoes right now going into clerkship and eventually needing to um, apply to CARMS, how to pick that specialty or family medicine, whichever one is the best for you? It's a great question. I think that, I mean, shadowing is very important. You have to be just really careful with, with narrowing things too quickly. I've had students over the years. I've, you know, I've been in practice 25 years and I've had students for 23, 24 years. And I remember having students in first year of med school come to my office during the clinical preceptorships. And, you know, there was the, I, I can still see the student now. He was going to go into, um, he was going to go into psychiatry, ended up in pathology by choice. And somebody else who was going to go into family medicine end up in neurosurgery. Um, but just to tell you that there, there, um, is, is sort of a wide kind of range of things that you may or may not be interested in. And to answer your question, I think when we choose, when students choose their their residency, I think it depends on a lot of things. One of the things is, is your own experience. So if you have a really bad experience, um, pick a discipline. You have, you have a bad experience in obstetrics, just didn't work out, you were having some tension with one of the nurses or something. I think the saddest and scariest thing is turning off of obstetrics because of that one experience. And I've had students say that to me. They say, you know, Dr. Parr, you love family medicine, but I'm not going into family medicine after that rotation I did in this city or with that preceptor. They're just miserable and they're grumpy. And I just thought, how sad is that? And so to answer your question, um, I think the biggest mistake to make, so I'm answering it as a negative, the biggest mistake would be to exclude and write off areas when you haven't totally made up your mind. And don't let one experience turn you off. Because not everybody practices family medicine the same way. Not every general surgeon does it the same way. Not every labor, sorry, obstetrician, gynecologist will do it the same way. And so if you're thinking about a discipline, think about it um, with the widest scope in mind and try not to close any doors. So then what is the safest? Yes, family medicine is probably safest. Internal medicine, probably surgery. Think about the ones that are the wider scope ones. And if you're thinking about closing a door in a particular discipline, just before you do, give yourself the benefit of the doubt and do one more sort of experience in it. Now, the schedule is really tight in the MD program. You don't have the opportunity for endless numbers of electives and so forth. So for, I'm, I'm just making this up. If there's something you're saying, you know what, I didn't connect on that. I really don't see myself being that kind of subspecialist or specialist. And even if you can't fit in another rotation in that discipline, shadow somebody in that discipline just to confirm to yourself, okay, that didn't work for me. So I'm just going to make this up. But let's say you had an experience in ophthalmology that didn't work. Before you decide you're not going to go into ophthalmology, spend another four weeks just shadowing somebody in ophthalmology. And I'd be stunned if you had the same kind of experience twice. So it is tough. And I actually am going to sound very political when I say this. I actually don't think the system right now is set up 
um, in a in a very student sensitive way. And so, all, you know, our history tells us at UBC and actually probably most of the medical schools in Canada, probably in the U.S. too, but in Canada for sure, 40% of our students, 35 to 40% go into family medicine. And obviously I'm biased because I'm a family physician. I'd love if 100% went into family medicine, but I know that that's not necessarily what we need. We need everybody in the various specialties. But I'll tell you something. If, if that 40% that went into family medicine jumped up to 60%, I'm not sure that's a win. And... I'll say this, as much as we have a family physician shortage in Canada, I don't want a family physician who's in family medicine and miserable. Like, I'd much rather you went into dermatology, neurosurgery, internal medicine, I don't care what else, and be happy with it. So the other advice I have to give is don't do anything as a default. Because if you're doing it as a safe second choice or third choice, um, it may seem like you're, it may seem like you're, um, you know, not wanting to be unmatched. It's a negative. You just want to be matched. The other part of it is that match or unmatch may be a year, two years of your life. You're talking about the next 30, 40 years of your life. And so to answer your question about how do you choose, delay it as long as possible and then make sure that your choices are sort of wide. Um, And what I mean by that is be careful about narrowing it too quickly. Um, so the person I interned with at Royal Columbian, he was amazing, David Caprivo, I'll, I'll mention his name, a graduate from McGill. And he and I were paired up together. And I think there was somebody who had some really dark humor around this because Calgary was always known as a school that was psychosocial, warm, friendly, fuzzy. And we didn't even, cut, we didn't, we still don't um, um, dissect cadavers. You know, you go into the prosection lab and everything's kind of labeled. So the joke used to be that, you know, the graduate from our school would know the name of your when you interview a patient, would know the name of your puppy when you're in grade one, but probably wouldn't know where the ulnar nerve ran in detail. And whereas David Capriva was the opposite. He knew where the ulnar nerve ran. So that somebody in their warped sense of humor paired us up together for the whole year. And um, and uh, I a dynamic duo, or I think it was Batman and Robin. I didn't like being Robin, but I was Robin. And um, But David ended up with the exact same R1 year right? End up in vascular surgery and um, doing very, very well. I think he's in Manitoba right now. Um, So there you can see we had the exact same R1 year. I clicked into family medicine and wouldn't turn back. He went into vascular surgery. So even though our first year of R1 was identical, like I would say even the same patients, but just what worked for us. And that was the beauty of being able to delay it a little bit. So I, as much as and when, when I raise this at national levels with deans across the country and I say, is there any way we could ever go back to something like that? Most of them will say the metaphor is awful, but the horse is out of the barn. And so the horse on the barn, the horse out of the barn and the barn was burnt down. Unfortunately, we'll never be able to go back. Um, so what, what do you need to do? And this puts unfair pressure on first and second year students. But I think you need to start thinking about it early. You know, don't blame it on the the schedule in third year, which didn't allow you to get good experience early on before then you had to make your elective decisions for year four. Um, and and that may mean some extra time on evenings and weekends on, on your holidays. And again, not don't do it intensely, but do it with the view that you're just trying to get extra knowledge about that discipline. Um, because unfortunately, this, the, the more structured sessions that we send you into uh, from the UBC Faculty of Medicine may or may not be what connects with you. Um, I'm thinking about, I'll tell you my own experiences even in neurology. 
and this is in my R1 year when I was thinking about maybe going into neurology, in the same group with, with the same, same group of five neurologists, depending on which neurologist is spending the half day with, I either loved it or I hated it. You know, there was, and, and it's not like the patients were any different. They were same stroke and movement disorders and, you know, degenerative conditions and so forth. So it's not like the patients were different. There was one neurologist that, oh, I was ready to worship him. And then there's another neurologist I thought, I can't possibly ever think of being like you, right? And it was just, and, and that was what was going to help me make my decision. And, and how random is that, right? So I think the more exposure you can get to it, the better. I think you also have to figure out what drives you. And, and that, and that's important. And so obviously in family medicine, we talk about longitudinal relationships, right? So I've been in practice after I did my locum, I did locums for about half a year. And I decided that what I really liked about when I was in various people's offices was I liked when I really, really liked it when the patient came back, right? And the walk-in clinic, and I did walk-in clinics too. Um, I needed it to supplement my income at the time. And, and, so I did walk-in clinics, but when I was worried about walk-in clinics, like I'd order an antibiotic or I'd do a swab, um, bacterial swab, and I never knew what the result was. I never knew if the antibiotic worked. And I just, I needed, especially early in practice, I needed that closure. Like when I ordered that x-ray on that swollen ankle, it was it really a fracture. Did I not need the x-ray? So I loved it when I was in a locum for about four or five weeks because often I would get the result where I'd call the patient back in to discuss how they're doing. And that brought closure for me. And I really needed that because a lot of my training up until then was in, in hospital settings. It was quite different than now. now. Now you get a lot of exposure to family medicine. So, so I realized very early on in my training that I liked that follow-up bit. So I liked the longitudinal. So after doing locums for about a year, I decided to just set up practice. Back in that day, so this is now 93, you actually had, and you're not going to believe me when I say this, but you actually had to buy a practice. Now most physicians, including me, probably couldn't give your practice away, but I had to buy a practice. And so that meant even more debt. So you had to go to the bank and get a loan. And it was a bit nerve-wracking because then you're thinking, okay, now I've got an extra loan that I have to pay. And, and it was interesting, though, because what happened, and I didn't realize it until even five years later, was that that helped start building those relationships. So people that were uh, couples that were pregnant then, so the mom was pregnant, like those kids now are 25 years old. And, you know, one or two, I have actually walked into the first day of medical school and it was like, you don't recognize me. I'll be like, no, I said you delivered me. I was like, okay, wow. And, and that's what I realized really early on that I liked. That really worked for me. I like the longitudinal relationships. I like seeing um, kids and adults sort of go through different parts of their life. And I like being um, a person in their community that, that they kind of leaned on, right? And so I set up practice in, in the Burnaby New West area. Huge, huge high demands. And I already had decided by then I needed to work when, around the social determinants. So that area was um, very um, well known for being uh, an area where a lot of new refugees and new immigrants came. So every major crisis in the world, um, because of the rents or the um, apartments being less expensive there, so people came. So it started off with anybody that was persecuted by the Taliban. So Afghani refugees. And then later it was the Yugoslavian war. So Croats, Serbs and Bosnian people came there. And then after that, it was all the stuff that happened in Somalia and so forth. So it became this kind of area where there are always new people kind of coming in. And and what I didn't realize was happening was that um, I was actually sort of becoming a little pillar in each of their communities. And, and this is going to sound, you're probably too young to remember this, but there was a show called Doc Hollywood. Um, with um, 
Michael J. Fox. And he goes, he wants, to, he is a plastic surgeon, but somehow he ends up in this rural community and they pay him with like pigs and corn and stuff. And he, so he, and then at one point they actually start bringing, bringing him their personal mail because they either can't read it or they don't understand it. So he's actually reading like their, their, um, their, the mail that they're getting from family relatives. And, and I realized I had fallen a bit into that role when somebody brought me like their BC hydro bill. And as a family doctor, and, and they're like, what do I do with this? And language is kind of broken. Not that my, you know, um, Bosnian was any better or whatever. Um, we said, what do I do with this? And I'd be like, um, pay it. Um, and so it was actually kind of, or, you know, being the kids' report cards. Saying, Dr. Parr, is this a problem that Johnny's getting this mark? I'd be like, um, yeah, you need to actually go to the teacher and the counselor and sort this out. But it was kind of, and, you know, for a young, I was still only 23, right? For me, I had no responsibilities. Literally, you know, grew up as a spoiled, you know, only male child of a South Asian family. I had little to no responsibilities. And and so all of a sudden, for to get all this responsibility was really good for my confidence. Mind you, the flip side of that was funny, too. When I started the dating game, I would never tell people that I was going out with what I did for a living. I just thought that wouldn't work in so many different ways. And so we were walking in Metrotown Mall and, all these, and, on, and these kids would be hiding behind pillars, right? Like I would walk and some kid would scream and then hide behind a pillar. And, and um, my partner, Anita says, and what do you do exactly? And I'm like, and, and what it was, you can guess it was from vaccinations, right? And so with the kid, because I was giving vaccinations, the old kid would, would like run, run, run down the hallway in the mall and hide behind a pillar. She goes, and what is it that you do? And so I thought, okay, so maybe I should. Um, so you get kind of known in the community for positive and negative things. Giving vaccinations might be one of them. Um, but, but it was kind of, it, it was kind of neat at a point in my life where, because I'd moved from a small town up north, I needed to feel connected and it, and it worked for me. Like it really did work. I mean, the other thing that worked in family medicine for me was that you, you could pick and choose what areas you want to focus on. So in my first year of practice, mostly when I was doing locums, I remember I counted. So 365 days in the year, I did 308 deliveries, right? I, I'm pretty sure I set a record somewhere. And what happened was, I, I'm, I'd like to believe it was coincidental, but I always end up doing a locum for someone when they had a whole bunch of women do to deliver in that month and I'm starting to think that maybe they went on holidays because they knew that they had a lot of deliveries in that month I'm not sure but anyway I ended up and I thought to myself this is really neat and I did do continue doing deliveries in my own practice but then I thought at some point you know I'm not sure that this is something I'm going to be able to continue doing one of the one of the challenges was then I moved uh, my practice stayed in Burnaby, but I moved into Vancouver, and that distance became a bit of a can I get to the hospital fast enough? But one of the one of the joys there was that we had a group, and then one one of the members in the group did a lot of deliveries, and so we referred all our our pregnant people to her, and she did the delivery. So you can sort of pick and choose different areas. Um, I still I still uh, less so now, but I did a lot of work in the hospital, so I would do rounds on all my patients. And at the time, I was on staff at Royal Columbia and Burnaby General. There's a hospital that used to be called St. Mary's. It's not there anymore. And Eagle Ridge Hospital. So I'd go in the morning, see my patients that were admitted, write orders and admit them or whatever, go to my clinic, practice. And then if somebody new had been admitted or one of the patients um, needed attention at the end of the day, I would go do rounds again and then come home. And that was kind of complete. And that for me was really, really important then. And and helping um, being a surgical assist when the patients went in for appendectomies or laparotomies or so forth. And so that for me at that point in my life was important because I felt like um, even things like IV orders, like I knew that if I just became, when I say just, I, if it was a family physician that didn't step in the hospital, I wasn't ready to give up those kind, that level of acuteness because I didn't know where my life was going. 
And then as I started doing more stuff in, at the university and government and other places, I then thought, you know what, now I'm, I'm not sure I have the time to do the deliveries anymore or the time to be, do the surgical assist. And so you can start pulling back. So one of the other joys is that not only do you have the longitudinal relationships, but you can sort of hone in on or focus on the areas that you want to sort of focus on. So I have colleagues that, you know, do a lot in women's health. And so they do a lot of maternity. They do a lot of um, um, sort of women's health stuff. There's other people that focus on mental health. So they, they work in mental health teams. I have colleagues that do nothing but young people's health. They're family physicians. Um, that's what their title is. But they work at um, university health services around the province, so the, the colleges and the universities. And so they see, you know, between eight adult patients, young adults from 18 to like 30 is a bulk of their patients. Um, sports medicine. Um, there's palliative care. A lot of family physicians focus just on palliative care. So there's one one of the things that is really good in family medicine is that it allows you to, if you couldn't make up your mind before because you weren't ready yet, like I said when I started this conversation, it allows you to kind of get to it later. So my own niche um, developed, I mean, the immigrant refugee practice is still a big part of what I do, but the other part is people with disabilities. So in the last... Um, about 10 years, I, my practice is almost exclusively people with disabilities, so um, visible and invisible. So if you went into my waiting room, you'd see people in um, wheelchairs, um, um, walking with canes or crutches. Um, alter- and, and then you'd also see patients that look well on the outside, but they have brain injury or they have significant um, cancers or psychological conditions. And that's an area that I, I focus on, severe um, car accidents, sports injuries, uh, work injuries. And that's just an area, and that opened up different areas of my practice. So I was, um, uh, for five years, I was the WorkSafe BC, or known as WCB. I was one of their doctors for five years. So that that gave me an opportunity to leave my practice for a half day a week, go into this sort of quasi-government type office, and the case managers who were reviewing files would bring me other patient situations, not my own patients, and say, you know, um, Dr. Parha, this patient got, sorry, this worker slipped and fell and fell onto their hip, and now the x-ray shows osteoarthritis. Now, is that osteoarthritis caused by the slip and fall or not? So you, because they're not medical people, you would help them decipher that. And then I took a break from that and became the city of Vancouver's occupational physician, which was really neat. So I was the, the, the physician for the entire city. And what that means is not, not public health, but for the employees. So if there was a firefighter, um, a police person, um, a librarian, um, the the garbage truck drivers, I'm just trying to arborist the trim trees, if one of them got injured or unwell, um, they would send them to me at this office downtown and I would assess them and find out if they're safe enough to be working. So that was kind of neat. I did that for a couple of years. And then after that, I went to something called the Appeal Tribunal for Workers' Compensation. So if there's an appeal where the worker or the employer has done something that somebody's not happy with, you can appeal it to this body. And so in their wisdom, the government set this up and it had 100 judges who decide these appeals. But then they realized about 70 to 80 percent of the work had to do with medical issues. And these were judges and lawyers. Right. And they, they decided they needed somebody. So I, I coordinated all the medical evidence for the province and did that for about nine years. So that was a lot of fun. Um, so it opened up doors that actually for and then I did the similar thing for UBC. So UBC employees for a couple of years as well. So people that work in the labs and so forth and the gardening and the landscaping. So it opened up um, a whole bunch of areas that I wouldn't have thought to go to. Um, most recently, in the last two years, my partner and I have opened up um, two adult ADHD clinics. 
So there's one in Burnaby and one in Vancouver. And again, again, nothing I thought about. If you'd asked me 25 years ago, I probably only thought about ADHD in kids. I didn't know what, I maybe heard about Ritalin, but that was about it. And so my partner, who's a PhD in education, also teaches in medicine and in fact, the education here, we sort of tripped on it when we realized there was a lot of adults that um, 80% of them actually don't, don't um, aren't cured of their ADHD just because they got older. So it's only 20%. As they get older, the ADHD goes away. 80% are adults who are wandering around, undiagnosed or untreated. So we kind of took baby steps. We we started like a half day a month and, and said, we'll see ADHD patients. Now we're seeing over 100 a month of new consultations, just to tell you. So again, an example of if you'd said to me, forget two years ago, or 20 years ago, if you said to me three years ago, you know, you're going to open up and run two adult ADHD clinics that are entirely an MSP, nothing private, I would have said no way. And so what I and I couldn't have done that if I'd become um, an orthopedic surgeon or a neurologist. So for me, the flexibility is something I've kind of thrived on. It's, it's allowed me to pick what I'm passionate about and, and not feel like I'm wedded to it, that I can evolve in it. And I haven't done this, but but and I, I am going to do this in um, in in March. I haven't done much stuff overseas, but I have family physician friends who go overseas quite a bit and do a lot of stuff in global health. Um, I got my first project is planned in Zimbabwe coming up in March, and and so there's another opportunity, you know. So you can go into almost any community as a family physician and help meet the needs of that community. Now you can obviously do it from an internal medicine, surgery, pediatrics, obstetrics, and gynecology. You can do it in, in all the disciplines. But, but the opportunity to do it as a generalist is probably, there, there's nothing that is sort of, there's nothing that you can't um, be relevant to. Um, it's just the, the depth. It is At some point you have to say, okay, you know what, this needs a surgeon or this needs an obstetrician, and that's fine. So when I, when I look at my career choices over time, for somebody who has been as indecisive as I have been about what I wanted to do when I grew up, I think it worked out really well. Because it it didn't allow me to sh- to close that um, that that philosophical door and allowed me to keep it open and then maybe find another few doors that I didn't even know were there, so that that part really worked out for me while while giving me the satisfaction of um, being able to um, teach, um, go up in um, sort of academic roles. So I ran courses, family practice courses, and clinical courses in the medical program here then became associate head of the Department of Family Practice, then acting head of the Department of Family Practice, associate dean, now executive associate dean. And um, that, I'm not sure I would have been able to do it as easily from other disciplines for me. And there's an entrepreneurial side as well in that I, we run two, I, I own two practices, one's in Burnaby and one's in Vancouver. And there's probably a total of 14, 15 physicians that work in them. And the nice thing about being an owner is I get to make decisions, which is, you know what? I don't like any of our notebook computers in the rooms. They're too slow. Let's replace them all. If I if I didn't have that um, sort of ownership title, I don't know if I could do that. Or I'm sick and tired of um, this particular software. Or I don't like the way we start at 8.30. I want to start at 8. So it was that ability to be almost like a little business owner and making some decisions. If you can think about a startup, it's kind of like a startup. And, and using a language today, is it's, when you're building a practice or pairing up with someone, it's like a startup. The nice thing in medicine is you're, the demand's really high. It would be a startup that's unlikely to fail. I don't mean to be overly confident, but the demand in healthcare is so much there that you could choose any discipline and do well. 
And if you don't mind me asking, Dr. Barhart, what exactly does a dean do at UBC or in your position as a dean of professionalism? Yeah, so very good question. I'm, I'm executive associate general clinical partnerships and professionalism. So there's two parts to that. Um, the professionalism bit is probably the easiest to understand. So that's um, teaching and making sure we have curriculum around what professionalism is. And um, that there are similar kind of roles in various universities across Canada. And looking at what the what is the best way to teach it. So in the old days, it was a lot of lectures on professionalism. And uh, the, the real dean used to joke to me, he said, Gurdip, when you, when you say to the students, you're giving a talk on professionalism, does the lecture theater empty before you walk into the room? Or once you start, do they all leave? And I said, it's not that bad. It's not that boring. But anyway, it can be a kind of a heavy topic. So we think about doing it with actors and you know modules and so forth. But the other part, and arguably the more stressful and perhaps the more engaging bit, is the transgressions. So when somebody behaves unprofessionally, what do we do about that, um, about them? And this would be not just our trainees, but our faculty members and others. So that job right now, uh, it, it involves a, a team and involves, in fact, we are just speaking to some of the student groups yesterday and we'll be speaking to them today about the kinds of issues that come up. So things like posting inappropriate things on social media. Um, uh, boundary issues with patients or colleagues, intimidation, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, so those types of things. It's it's a tough job, uh, and, and and I often joke that, you know, when I show up to somebody to talk to them about their professionalism, they usually don't greet me with flowers and chocolates because it is kind of an intense conversation. Uh, but, but having said that, there needs to be somebody who's, who's helping deal with these. That's the professionalism bit. The other part of my executive associate dean role is clinical partnerships. And so clinical partnerships deals with the number of clinical faculty we have in the province. They may, may or may not surprise you, but we have 9,000 clinical faculty. So just to explain what clinical faculty are, these are people like myself who have a practice, but they also do things at the university, as opposed to full faculty or tenured faculty who are fully employed by the university. They may do clinical work as well, but their but their salary comes from the university. So of the clinical, so of the full faculty in the faculty of medicine, we have about six hundred, about fifty six hundred, um, of clinical faculty of nine thousand. And of those 9,000, about 1,000 are other health professionals, so OTs, PTs, midwives, and so forth. And about, about 8,000 are MDs. So, but they're, they're spread everywhere, even in my hometown of Kitimat and Terrace, right to the lower mainland. And so it's making sure that they feel supported, making sure that um, they get proper payment for what they do, that their careers um, um, improve and, and go on the right trajectory. In fact, the meeting right before this, we were talking about um, our success in setting up a clinical faculty mentoring program for them. It also means that the, the Executive Associate Dean of Clinical Partnerships is also having relationships with health authorities. So later today, I'll be speaking to one of the health authority vice presidents um, with a, a problem that we're having with um, one of our students is having at a particular hospital. And um, I'm going to need the, the VP medicine of this hospital to help me solve it. So we don't own the hospitals. The, the difference in the models in the U.S. is that in the U.S., um, often the medical schools own the university. Uh, sorry, the, the university owns the hospital. But here, we don't own the hospitals. The hospitals are owned by the health authorities and so forth. But there are partners in that. So if I want something changed in a hospital setting, I have to have a good relationship with the vice president of medicine or the CEO of the hospital to do it. And I need to do that because I need to figure out what's best for our students. So if my student's struggling with something, so that'll be a discussion today. And then also relationships with the associations. So for the MD students, it would be the doctors of BC. And for and the colleges, so the College of Physicians and Surgeons, um, so maintaining relationships with regulatory bodies and associations. 
a more general answer. So, so there are three executive deans. There's education, which is kind of obvious. There's um, research, which is probably obvious, and clinical partners and professionalism. I think the one way to answer your question, not so much in the different portfolios, but overall, is that you're a representative of the university. And day-to-day, day-to-day activities mean that when issues arise, you always have to be thinking, what's, what's, in, what's in the best interests of the university? Okay, faculty members, okay. But I think most importantly, what's in the best interest of our trainees? And if something's going to put our university or faculty medicine in disrepute or tarnish our image, I want that not to negatively impact the students and the degree they get. And so that's what we're always thinking about. And it's, it's a heavy load. Um, and, and along the same ways, we need to make sure we resource properly. Do we have the right funding to run our programs? So that sometimes means difficult conversations with, you know, student groups that have to pay tuition, with, with government that pays, supports us, and all, all those types of things. So they're tough discussions. Often they're not granular. They're at a pretty high level. So it would be saying, I, this is what we feel philosophically. Now somebody needs to help make this happen. I want to touch a little bit on what you were speaking to us about regarding your work in professionalism. How difficult would you say it is to change an existing work culture uh, regarding professionalism and other issues? Is that a huge challenge or is it just much easier to start with new medical students such as ourselves? So I used to believe that if we taught first-year medical students, everything about how to be perfectly professional. That means my, my lengthy lectures, the, the modules, the, act, the actors. Then in four years' time, we'd have perfect residents. And then once the residents finished, we'd have perfect faculty members. And that's what we call a pipeline effect. There's a problem with that thinking, is we can teach, I can teach it all perfectly. The first time one of our trainees or medical students gets exposed to bad behavior, and it could be a, a senior medical student, it could be a resident, or it could be a faculty member, all that good teaching gets undone really quickly. And so that is a struggle. So your question is a really good one. Do you focus on um, the new people coming in and therefore change the, the entire system? Or do you have to address the problems that are already out there? And I think it's, a, it's both. You have to do both. You can't, obviously the new recruits and the new people in, in the profession, you have to you have to tell them and make sure they understand what's okay and what's not okay. But that doesn't mean you ignore the ones at the other end because they're influencing these people and they're influencing everybody else. In a discussion yesterday, we were talking about some sexist remarks that uh, were being made. And I said to the students, I said, I'm delighted that you even recognize that that's unacceptable. I, that's, that's, that's my first stop you need to recognize that what somebody said was inappropriate. After that, what we're going to do about it is harder. So so generations ago, I don't even know if we recognized that that was unacceptable, or we just accepted it as being acceptable. So how can you not teach that? So awareness definitely is a big part of it. You raise another question, which you can actually take to a more microcosm level. And people have often asked me this, which is, Gurdip, do you actually think you can change someone's professionalism? And you, you were speaking about systems and culture, but even on an individual basis. So if somebody lies and cheats, if somebody steals, if somebody says something racist, and then we find out about it, we sit them down, make them do the things I do, do a reflective exercise, do a training session in this, teach this, and then at the end of the day, have we changed them? Are they truly changed? And I always make the comment that I'm not sure. I don't have enough longitudinal data to be convinced that our interventions actually help. 
I know that at the end of the day, when I make somebody do a reflective exercise or take a sensitivity training course, it makes me feel good about myself, uh, which is, it sounds silly, but it makes me feel like I'm doing something. Have I really changed them? I'm not sure. And there's this, there's a debate going on right now that if somebody, and it's going to sound horrible, but if somebody's evil to the core, are you ever going to, ever going to change that? Or are all you doing is changing the outward face, which is the behavior? I'm not sure. But I'll tell you, we need to change the behavior because that is what people see. So if somebody's inherently racist, using that example, are you going to change their thinking? I'm not sure. But I, but they better not be saying and behaving in a racist manner because that's what we're going to see on the outside. So it's a, definitely a tough. And back to your initial question around professionalism, I would say the same thing is that if somebody is unethical and they and that's how they think, they, their value system is not acceptable to us. As long as they behave in an ethical manner, maybe that's the best we're going to do. They're, they're tough, and I have to admit, I, I have I've done a lot of soul searching myself about why do I put so much effort into this? Is this really going to change anything? And then what's often reassuring is when I meet colleagues from across the country who are dealing with the same stuff, and they'll say, "Gurdip, that's exactly the struggle right now." In fact, I'm about to I lead a group nationally on remediation guidelines for um, unprofessional behavior. We're about to come up with a document for all the 17 Canadian medical schools that will say faculty and medical students, when they transgress, when there's an unprofessional behavior, what are the principles of remediating or fixing the problem? And this may or may not surprise you, but it's really talking about big stuff, like respect the traditions of the profession, respect how it's going to impact society. So the example I often give is, if somebody's going to be a little bit late to your CBL group or to a lecture, am I going to write them up Am I going to put them on some sort of probation? Probably not. It's like, okay, you're a bit late. Yeah, please be on time next time. Okay, they do it a second time. They do it a third time. Okay, you know what? You really need to respect everybody else's time and show up on time. Now, what if it's a code? It's a cardiac arrest in the hospital, and you have the pager, and you have to be racing to the fourth floor, and you stop for a Starbucks, a coffee. Um, so you're late, but now there's actually a patient patient impact right so you're still late and you still might be late by two minutes um and let's not use a coffee example you just took your sweet time or you're on the phone and finished some personal conversation and you showed up late so i think at the end of the day it's not just the behavior but the impact that that behavior has and i think that's that's something that we need to really emphasize to people i really don't care if somebody's late to a lecture i mean i probably shouldn't say that as a dean of professionalism but you know try to be on time but that's not a big deal to me you're, you 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 walk slowly to a cardiac arrest, that does concern me, right? They're both examples of being late. I want to bounce to um, another hat that you've been wearing in the past, and that was um, that you were involved with uh, media and medicine. That you had a show called Pearls of Success. I was wondering how you got involved with media and medicine in the first place. And, and uh, uh, for myself, at least, I'm very interested in that. That's something that I would like to learn more about. Again, one of those opportunities that just sort of came up and we expanded on. So as, as I said, my practice was, uh, it still is a lot of refugees and immigrants. And what I realized was that first year when you get to Canada, there's a steep learning curve, right? Like you don't know, I'm thinking about families. You don't know how to prepare your kid's lunch. You don't know how to read that report card. What do you do in parent-teacher meetings? When do you go to eMERGE? When do you not go to eMERGE? What, what about flu shots? Is blood pressure important? Is high cholesterol important? 
So what we did was we sat down, my partner and I, um, the other, Dr. Parra, Anita, Anita Parra, sat down and she's an education expert and used to teach in elementary schools before she became a faculty member. So she had all the education stuff and I was focused on the health bit. So we wrote, we wrote content for 12 episodes of this show that was called Pearls for Success. So it was aimed at new immigrants and new refugees um, to Canada. And the idea was that we wanted to give them tools and tips, pearls, on, and so that they, that first year of the learning would be easier on them. Because we know by the third and fourth year, they're going to get it. But why make that first year harder for them? And so we did. We wrote content for 12 episodes, and we went to Shaw, the one of the multicultural channels, and um, and said, this, this is the idea for a show. And they came back and they said, no. We were a bit disappointed and disheartened. And they said, we know what's going to happen. The show is going to take off. And then you two are going to get too busy creating more new content. And we want, don't want to keep doing reruns. So we'll give it to you if you write content for 24 episodes. So we went back to the drawing board and we did ep- episodes on what to do at the dent- dental visit. Um, what to do, oh, depression, anxiety. And, and it was really neat. And this goes back to using experiences that you have in a different venue. So thinking about good and bad role plays, when I was teaching medical students how to do interviews or how to do physical exam, that's the model that the show was based on. So Anita and I would introduce the topic at the beginning, a little bit of sort of um, small talk, and then we'd have a bad role play. So on the flu shot one, a flu vaccine one, there's people sitting, two people sitting in a, in a waiting room. They're everybody's volunteers. And a lot, actually med students were involved in the acting. And they're sitting in the waiting room and these two patients are going, are you getting a flu shot? And she says, oh, no, there's lots of side effects. I hear it gives you the flu. Oh, yeah. And then you get sick. And, and somebody says, yeah, and, and they don't really work anyway. So it's everything kind of wrong and erroneous. And then what we do, and then, then the next segment, and the next part of the show, it's still the same episode. The next part is an interview with an infectious disease specialist or a vaccine specialist going through all the pros and cons of vaccines and why they're good. And then a good role play where the same people at the beginning are now having a positive conversation. So one of the episodes we did was um, on, uh, on skin care safe sun exposure and so there were medical students did this as one of their projects so they're running around on the beach i think it was kids beach and they're not wearing sunscreen and they're not wearing um, glasses and so forth and um, they're obviously getting exposed and somebody says you wear sunscreen oh it doesn't work anyway or i rubbed a little behind my ears you know it's kind of a little bit goofy and then the students actually interviewed um, dr harvey louis who was the head of dermatology at the time, one of your esteemed professors and teachers. And so they interviewed Harvey, and Harvey spoke about the importance of sun, sunscreen and sun exposure and all the things you have to do to prevent cancers. And then the, sec- then the, then the good role play are the same students covered, you know, in, in sunscreen and hats and things. And so that, just to give you an example of how that show came out, so what, what the TV station did was um, they said, we'll assign you a producer. And because we're all volunteers, we weren't wanting to be paid, and we thought, oh, so how are we going to pay for the producer? And how it worked out was that the producer was allowed to sell commercials. So the producer would produce the show, but then any income from commercials went to her studio. And we just were responsible for the content. And so it ran for about three to four years live, actually probably longer, about five years. And now all the modules have been transferred online. So they're all been recorded and on. And one of the funniest stories I have about it, then the other part was you, you got facial recognition. We were parking downtown somewhere and somebody would say, aren't you from that show? I was like, oh, wow. You know, now I'm feeling like. Anyway, so what was interesting was I had this patient and when we'd have this um, sort of um, an email response thing, if you have a question, you can email us. And I had this person, I'm just going to think of a sort of an Anglo-Saxon white name, just to say, you know, Mrs. Jane Smith calling and asking a question about cholesterol. And I'm going, 
why is somebody named Jane Smith watching a show for refugees and immigrants? And what happened was it was actually between two popular channels. And so as they were flipping, they stopped and said, I recognize that guy or I recognize her from my partner. And they would actually watch the show. So a lot of people said, I always wondered when to go to Emerge. So I just learned. So people, what, what was meant to be an audience for refugees, it was in English. So refugees and immigrants ended up way wider than that. So it was all, you know, it's interesting when you, and, and so what started off as a project just to, just to improve the life and quality of life of new immigrants and refugees ended up being this huge health literacy project. And, and it was neat. It was really neat. And it, it, it was our first venture into, um, public media and, you know, done a lot of radio interviews and other things since then. But it was neat. And it sort of helped to see things on the other side of it and, and figure out, you know, as physicians, I think we're always there to do good. We're always there to help our community and, and, and improve health. And if there was an opportunity to say in your average practice, there's two or 3,000 patients. If I can now impact the health of 10,000 or 20,000 or 50,000 people that are watching the show, why wouldn't you do it, right? And so it was really about messaging. And, and for us personally, it, 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 we enjoyed it. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, but it also helped us get our message out. So it was good. And we would pick topics. There was, there was a lot of, you know, it still is a lot of stigma with um, mood disorders. And so depression, especially in, in American refugee groups, was not something that was talked about a lot. And so we were really keen on um, sending that message out that, you know, this is something if you're feeling sad or you're feeling these symptoms of depression, you need to go get help. And so so it helped us. It gave us a platform to talk about the things that were important. And I think whether it's that or social media now or YouTube or whatever it is, I think that's what social media does. Um, it also gave me confidence later to do my um, TEDx talk on fixing racism. And um, my kids who are young adults watched the numbers more than me. And, I, and, and it was interesting. I did it um, in, in, in the year, I'm trying to remember, about May, I think it was 2016, if I've got the year right. And right after that was the massacre in Orlando. It was a Syrian refugee crisis. And there are a few other things that happened. And when it got actually posted, the TED people posted. And within, I think, the first six or eight weeks, it had over a million views. And so it it wasn't something like, you know, I'm not an expert on racism, um, but I had to tell my own story about experiencing racism. And that gave me a platform to talk about something that was important. And I think as physicians, you know, we're often careful because we don't want to get too political and we don't want to turn off people. But there's something that you feel strongly about, especially if it affects the quality of lives of others. And you're in a privileged enough position. I think we are as physicians. If you're in a privileged enough position that you have a microphone, um, you have an audience, or you have um, you have a voice, wherever that voice is, then I think there's a responsibility that goes with using it properly. And I, and I think back on my path, and if, I hadn't, if we hadn't done the Pearls for Success show, I don't know if I would have agreed to do the TED Talk, um, TEDx Talk. So I think it just one thing built on another. What then I didn't expect was that Black Lives Matter happened right afterwards. So all of a sudden, I was on a talking circuit in the U.S. giving talks on Black Lives Matter. And the joke my family always tells is, did you tell them you're not black? And I, and I said, well, they never asked me. I just went. And um, so that was the joke. They said, you need to tell people that you're not black. You're actually brown. You should be giving a talk on Brown Lives Matter. But anyway, it was around that whole racist bit with the police. And, and, and it was important. And it was important that people in healthcare speak up. Sounds like you've had a lot of interesting um, and effective 
uh, platforms on which to advocate for your patients. And that's something that's kind of been um, ingrained into us throughout this program, that patient advocacy is so important. But it's not really taught how we can do that. So as second-year medical students moving on into clerkship, again, how do we advocate for our patients with the sometimes limited amount of time that we have? And then moving forwards, how do you balance the daily demands of having your own practice and all of the, the responsibilities you have there with still keeping your patient's best interests at heart and, and really finding those opportunities to go in, above and beyond for them? It's a great question. I think as physicians, with the skill sets that you'll have and that we have, you know, communicating and, and, and understanding the biological aspects and the health determinants um, of, of health and disease, I think there's a lot of knowledge that we have to share. And I think it, we feel like we need to do it. Um, the tension always is exactly as you said, is the time. And I think what you do is what fits at the time. So in medical school, you know, I did a lot of stuff in student government. Um, n not necessarily in the faculty of medicine there, but in centrally and led a lot of sort of initiatives. But but ultimately, I think you do what you can fit in. And and the biggest mistake would be to spread yourself too thin. I've known many medical students over the years, and some very well-meaning medical students spread themselves too thin. You know, the the projects are amazing, but then either their schoolwork suffered, schoolwork suffered, or their other work suffered. And I don't think you want to do that. I think the end goal is still getting through the program and getting your certifications and everything. Now, having said that, if there is something you're passionate about, my first advice would be see if, see who else is doing it, right? Like like the, the like the Pros for Success show. I didn't say, you know, I'm going to create a movie studio or I'm going to create on YouTube. I went looking. We went looking for help, and somebody gave us a producer. I didn't have the time to learn how to run a video camera. And likewise with the TEDx, you know, I could have easily created my own YouTube, but they had a whole team. So one thing to do if you're passionate about something is see who's already kind of doing it and not have to deal with the, what, what, what ends up taking up our time. It's all the technical, administrative, all that. The stuff that we're good at, which is the communicating, when I say communicating, speaking, writing, um, the knowledge, focus on what you're good at and let other people do what they're good at. So if, so if a project, I'm just making this up, if you're interested in global health or underserved populations, see who's already doing it and join into that group because at least there'll be an infrastructure. Then later in life, once you have the time to start your own NGO or to start your own project, by all means, do it. There'll be, there won't be, for every new idea you come up with, there may not be a group that already is doing that. There may not be a receptor site. But for the time being, find the ones where there are some um, sort of support systems in place. And the second, so my good example there is our Zimbabwe project. And so I've been for a while thinking I need to figure out healthcare in other places. We go on holidays everywhere, but never for, for work. And I have a very good friend, happy to name him, Dr. Ray Markham, who works in rural BC. And Ray every year has been going to Zimbabwe. So he's got a project, it's sustainable, he's got a team on the ground, they know how to get visas, and when they're not there, they know the program runs well, so it's not some sort of medical tourism thing. And so Ray was speaking about this, and I said, Ray, I'd like to, let me know if there's an opportunity. And he said, well, Gurdip, there's like three opportunities. You, we could, you could go there and train faculty, you could run the health clinics, or you could help set up a, um, a computer lab. And then my kids were listening in, and they said, and you two could go and set up, the, I guess one of the schools wants a basketball court. And you could teach them how to play basketball because that's what they want for some reason and and set up um, a basketball sort of hoops and stuff. And, you know, so but there's an example of if I was to do that from scratch, 
you know, the, the logistics would, would bury me in terms of work. So the first thing is look for projects that already have some infrastructure support. And the second is if you're doing it yourself or even if you're doing a, a project somebody else initiated on your own, you need some support around that. And that might be something as mundane and simple as scheduling or typing up minutes or, you know, submitting a receipt or booking a flight. At some point, and I think physicians are relatively, I mean, I mean our salaries are, are good and we can usually, um, we, we have access to financial resources, is have one of your admin team or your assistants actually do some of that stuff for you. If you're spending all your time booking flights or looking at accommodation for your team or um, using my video example, you know, learning the technology so that you can run a video camera, then that's not a good use of your time. There's somebody else who can do it probably faster, and then you can focus on the things you want to focus on. So two bits of advice there. Look for existing projects that you can add on to so that you can then do bits of it and not feel burdened. So the students that have started new projects, initial power to them. I think it's absolutely amazing that they can commit like that. But having said that, it's, it's a heavy weight because then it's always, well, I've took, I was passionate about it, but now I'm in clerkship. Or now I've got to do my CARMS interviews. Is this project going to fall flat? Well, it kind of will. And so how, how do you sustain that? And if there isn't a group of equally passionate students right behind you that are going to take it up, and there may not be, then, 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 then the baby and the project you created may not, may not survive. And that's sad after all that work you put in. And the second is making sure that you always got the infrastructure support. So what are the easy things to do? You know, things like blogs, things like contributing um, talks, um, educating, because you can go out and do it and then come back. You know, those types of things are a bit more sustainable. Uh, great question. And I think don't feel, I mean, we talk about health advocacy a lot, but don't feel like you have to do it all right now. I think it's great for the students that do it. And I'm always very impressed. But but the the, the flexibility in your schedule doesn't allow a lot of that right now. Um, if possible, I'd like to touch on something you brought up earlier, spreading yourself too thin. Um, and I'd like to bring up the topic of burnout in physicians. Um, in family medicine, as as you know, you have a lot of contact with patients, a high patient volume. How do you keep yourself fresh and still empathetic and still sensitive to the needs of your patients after, you know, like I said, all the responsibilities that you do have to deal with from the day to day? So I've, I've, I've uh, witnessed it. I don't think I've gotten to burnout, and I'll tell you my strategies there. But I'll tell you, certainly physicians in my groups over the years have. And um, what ultimately... When you say, I like the word that you use to stay fresh, because I think you need to keep mixing it up. I think you need to, what is it that drives you in every day? If at the end of the day, it's the number of patients that you see or the amount of money you make, I can tell you that gets really boring really fast. The majority of people don't want to do that. So, so why do people work in walk-in clinics? I think they do it because it's convenient. Some may like the, you know, may even like the lifestyle associated with that. But that's not necessarily a career that's going to, for some people it works out great. And, I, and no problem. For other people, it may not. So that's the thing about mixing it up. What really did it for me, I, I tend to work on five-year cycles. And so first five years was sort of getting my practice going. And then it was taking on some of this occupational medicine with WorkSafe. So I guess what I'm saying is try to define yourself for the next few years and say, this is what I want to do. And and the nice thing about medicine is you don't have to give up one thing to do to test another, right? So you could say, um, and I've people in my practice that do this there's one fellow who's a, fa a fabulous physician he said you know Gripa, i think i like to try telemedicine i'm like okay he said i'm gonna but i'm only gonna do it like a half day on fridays i'm like 
go for it. And so the rest of the week, four and a half days of the week, he does regular bowling practice. And the half day, he, I imagine it's going to go well because he's so motivated, but he'll probably go to another day or another day. But mixing it up a bit. The other thing about staying fresh and keeping things interesting, and this is going to sound like a, um, a very UBC thing to say, is teaching. I'll tell you, it reminds me of why I went into this if I ever get discouraged. I remember in my first year of practice, I was, there was a patient who came in and we diagnosed hypertension, so high blood pressure. And um, I was putting the patient on an ACE inhibitor. And the student, back then, the, the, it's changed now, but the, the hypertension guidelines said, first line were beta blockers or diuretics, um, thiazide diuretics. Way different now, but back in the day. And the student looked over at me and said, Dr. Parr, just in very, in very polite voice, she said, you know, Dr. Parr, I'm just wondering, why would you not go with a beta blocker or a thiazide diuretic or a diuretic? I'm like, you're right. You're absolutely right. I have no idea. And and I think what it was, was I, the previous patient I had seen that day or something, I, there was an ACE inhibitor or there was an ACE inhibitor sample on the shelf and this patient couldn't afford med. I don't even know what the logic was. But I went, I went, wow, you're absolutely right. You're right. I, and And that was really... Really early on, I thought to myself, teaching is going to actually make me a better doctor because it's going to makes me try to stay up on stuff. And, and, and even the, the passion and the interest and all those types of things. So keeping it, I think teaching does that. Some research projects often do that, getting involved in um, some, it doesn't have to be massive, you know, double-blinded randomized studies or something, but even, even um, sort of simpler research projects can do that. Um, being involved in your association. Right, so one of my best friends from my R1 year at Royal Columbian is now the president-elect for the Doctors of BC, Kathleen Ross. And Kathleen and I, if I was to say to Kathleen 24 years ago, she was a young mom then when we were in training, you know, in 24 years, you're going to be the president of the Doctors of BC. She would have said, ah, get, get real. And, and there she is. And so, I, I mean, she's an amazing individual anyway. But the year she's going to have as president, wow. Right. So I think dabbling in things, I'm, I'm an elected member on the College of Physicians and Surgeons Board. So I like the regulatory parts of this and determining, you know, how medicine's changing. For example, in the last three years, I never thought I'd see a world with made medical assistance in dying. I never thought that physicians would, would accelerate death. Um, uh, cannabis for medical purposes. I know it's just been legalized now for recreational, but never thought that would be something I'd see in my lifetime. Right. So there are I mean, and and so to keep it fresh means also being engaged in that conversation. I'm on the ethics committee for the College of Family Physicians of Canada. And the next big thing that and and I'm sure I'm okay to tell you this. The next big thing we're tackling is big data. So big data, which means everything that's stored in my EMR. What do I do with that? Who do I share it with? Not not individual patients. Obviously, you can't share those for confidential reasons, but the aggregate data. So who can I, what, and who owns that? Does a patient own that? A patient piece of it? Or do we own it? So what are the ethics around that? But just to tell you, that wouldn't, I would never have thought of that as if when I was graduating medical school in 92, that I'd be sitting there thinking about health data later. Right. As we come towards the end of our interview, I want to thank you for sharing your, your insight and viewpoints and your experiences since those days in high school with your chicken manure fuel. <laughs> Um, could we just end with something that you're really proud of? This actually happened last year. And it really did make me reflect on uh, my 20-odd years here at UBC. There was a student that graduated in the class of 2018. And um, she she's doing residency somewhere else in the country. 
and something not good happened. There was an experience. She experienced some people with some bad behavior in this other place outside of BC. And she sent me an email saying I just needed to debrief. And she told me what had happened. And then she said, all I could think of is, what would Dr. Parhar do? And what would Dr. Parhar say? And that led me to how I dealt with the situation. And I thought to myself, that was it. That was it. The fact that there's somebody practicing somewhere in the country right now that still remembers some of the stuff I've taught, or at least the values or the principles, and that's impacting how they're thinking when a tough situation arises. I'm proud of that. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Farhar. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 